This is Luther's Works, Linker Edition, Volume 14. And we're on page 158, the 17th Sunday after Trinity. The text is Luke 14, 1 through 11. The subject matter is faith and love, the law and the right use of the law, and humility. And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. Behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. He took him and healed him and let him go, and answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or ox fallen into a pit, and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could not answer him again to these things. He put forth the parable to those which were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, when thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. He that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. This gospel offers us two leading thoughts. One is general and is found in all our gospel lessons. The other is peculiar. First, in its general character, it shows who the Lord Jesus is and what we may expect of him, and in this is exhibited both faith and love. Faith is here set forth in that this man, sick with the dropsy, looks to Christ and firmly believes he will help him. This faith he had as a result of his previous acquaintance with Jesus. He knows him as a kind, friendly, and sympathetic man who always helps everyone and lets none go away uncomforted. Had he not heard such reports about the Lord, he would not have followed him, even into the house. He must indeed have had some gospel knowledge and believed the wonderful things spoken about him. And this is the gospel, as I said, that must be preached and heard before there can be faith. We must know that God is kindly disposed toward us and has sent his Son from heaven to help us. This the conscience must hear and believe, for if God were unfriendly and unmerciful toward us, it would avail little to know that all his creatures sympathize with us. If God is satisfied with us, no creature can do us any harm, as St. Paul says in Romans 8:31. If God is for us, who is against us? Let death, 
devil, hell, and all creation rage, we are safe. Therefore, it is the gospel that must present to us the God-man as merciful. This is a fountain from which our heart can draw faith and a friendly confidence toward God, that he may help both the dying and the living in every distress. We notice this here in the man afflicted with dropsy. He had heard of the kindness of Jesus to others and now believes that he will show the same to him. Had he not believed, it would have been impossible to help him. The gospel resounds in all the world, but it's not heard by everybody. Pharisees also sat there. They saw these things with their own eyes and failed not to notice what a friendly man Jesus was. But they believed not, hence the gospel could neither reform them give them help and comfort. Thus the gospel is very universal, but the true laying hold of it is very rare. So much in regard to faith. Now the sermon before, the woman of Nain that had the dead son that was being carried out of the city, that was a little different. She didn't have a knowledge of Christ ahead of time. That's a matter to meditate on also. Now back to Luther. It says, Later we have here pictured to us also the love in Christ that goes forth and bears fruit, not for itself but for others, as is the nature of true love or true love to do. This is now said on the first part of today's gospel. However, this periscope especially teaches us, in the second place, a necessary doctrine we must possess if we are to make use of the laws that order the outward and temporal matters and affairs which the church is to observe. Here we must act wisely and gently if we wish to do the right thing, especially when weak and timid consciences are concerned. For there is nothing more tender in heaven and on earth, and nothing can bear less trifling than the conscience. The eye is spoken of as a sensitive member, but conscience is much more sensitive. Hence we notice how gently the apostles dealt with conscience in divers matters, lest it be burdened with human ordinances. As we cannot live without law and order, and as it is dangerous to deal with law, since it's too apt to ensnare the conscience, we must say a little about human laws and ordinances and how far they are to be observed. The proverb says, everything depends upon having a good interpreter. That is particularly true here where human ordinances are concerned. Where there is no one to interpret and explain the law rightly, it is difficult and dangerous to have anything to do with it. It's dangerous and it is difficult and dangerous to have anything to do with it. Take, for example, a ruler who acts like a tyrant and abuses his authority. If he makes a law and urgently insists on a law being executed, he treats conscience as if he had a sword in his hand and were intent on killing him. We have experienced this in the tyrannical laws of popery, how consciences were tormented and hurled into hell and damnation.
Yea, there is great danger where one does not know how to temper and apply the laws. Therefore we conclude that all law, divine and human, divine and human, treating of outward conduct should not bind any further than love goes. Love is to be the interpreter of law. Where there is no love, these things are meaningless, and law begins to do harm, as it's written in the Pope's book. If a law or ordinance runs counter to love, it will soon come to an end. This is in brief spoken of divine and human laws. The reason for enacting all laws and ordinances is only to establish love. St. Paul says in Romans 13:10, Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Likewise, in verse 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For if I love my neighbor, I help him, protect him, hold him in honor, and do what I would have done to me, and do for him what I would have done to me. Since then all law exists to promote love. Law must soon cease where it is in conflict with love. Therefore, everything depends upon a good leader or ruler to direct and interpret the law in accordance with love. Take the example of the priests and monks. They have drawn up laws that they will say mass and do their praying and juggle with God in other ways at given hours according to the clock. If now a poor man should call and ask for service, at an hour when they were to hold mass or repeat their prayers, they might say, Go your way, I must now read mass or must attend to my prayers. Thus they would fail to serve the poor man even if he should die. In this manner the most sanctimonious monks and Carthusians act. They observe their rules and statutes so rigorously that although they saw a poor man breathing his last breath, could help him so easily, yet they will not do it. But the good people, if they are Christians, ought to explain the laws and statutes in harmony with love and say, Let the Mass go, let the sacraments, prayers, and ordinances all go. I will dispense with works. I will serve my neighbor. Love put in practice in serving my neighbor is golden in comparison with such human work. And thus we should apply every law, even as love suggests, that it be executed where it is helpful to a fellow man, and dispensed with where it does harm. Take a common illustration. If there were a housekeeper who made the rule in his home to serve now fish, then meat, now wine, then beer, even as it suits him, but perchance some one of his household took sick and could not drink beer or wine or eat meat or fish. The housekeeper would not give him anything else but say, No, my rules and regulations prescribe this. I cannot give you anything else. What kind of a housekeeper would such an one be? One ought to give him sneeze wart to purge his brain. W-O-R-T is a root, an herb. They used a lot of it, I guess, in those days. 
in combination with other herbs for different sicknesses. For if he were a sensible man, he would say, it's indeed true that my rules and regulations prescribe meat or fish for the table today, yet since this diet does not agree with you, you may eat what you like. See how a housekeeper may adjust his own rules and make them conform to the love he entertains for his household? Thus all law must be applied as love toward a fellow man may dictate. Therefore, since the Mosaic law was not understood nor modified by love in the Old Testament, God promised the people through Moses that he would raise up a prophet who would interpret the law to them. For thus Moses says in Deuteronomy 18.25, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. God raised up prophets from time to time to explain the law and apply it, not in its rigor, but in love. Of this Moses himself is an example. He led the children of Israel out of Egypt for forty years, hither and thither through the desert. Abraham had been commanded in Genesis 17:12 to circumcise every male on the eighth day. This commandment was plain enough, but all had to observe it. Yet Moses neglected it and circumcised no one the whole forty years. Now, who authorized Moses to violate this commandment given to Abraham by God himself? His authority was vested in his knowledge of the law's spirit. He knew how to interpret and apply it in brotherly love, namely that the law was to be a serviceable or serviceable to the people, and not the reverse. For if during their journey they had to be ready day by day for warfare, circumcision would have hindered them, and he therefore omitted it, saying, In effect, although this law is given and should be observed, yet we will apply it in a spirit of love and suspend its operation until we come to the end of our journey. Likewise, we should or should all laws be interpreted and applied as love and necessity may demand. Hence the importance of a good interpreter. It was, in the, same in, it was the same in the case of David when he partook of the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, as Christ himself makes use of this example in Matthew 12, 3. David was not consecrated, nor were his servants. When he was hungry, he went to Abimelech and asked for himself and his men something to eat. Abimelech answered, I have indeed nothing to give. The shewbread of the tabernacle is for holy use. Then David and his men helped themselves and ate freely of it. Now did David sin in the face of God's ordinance? No, why not? Because necessity compelled him, seeing there was nothing else to eat. It is in this way that necessity and love may override law. That's what Christ also does in our gospel when he heals a suffering man on the Sabbath. Although he well knew how strictly the Old Testament required the observance of the Sabbath, 
we see what the Pharisees do. They stand by watching the Lord. They would not have helped the sick man with a spoonful of wine, even if they could have done so. But Christ handles the law even at the risk of violating it, really helps the poor sick man with the dropsy, and gives the public a reason for his action when he says, in effect, It is indeed commanded to keep the Sabbath day, yet where love requires it, there the law may be set aside. Thus he follows up with an illustration from everyday life, then dismisses them in a way they must command, and they answer him not a word. He says, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? As if to say, ye fools, are ye not mad and stupid? If you act thus in the case of saving an ox or an ass, which may perhaps be valued at a few dollars, how much rather should one do the same to a neighbor, helping him to his health, whether it be the Sabbath or not? For the Sabbath, as he says elsewhere, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Mark 2, 27. I thought the Lord made the Sabbath day for his own rest. But Christ said it's made for man. So what do you think that means? I'm thinking of the New Testament day of rest. For love's sake, we can keep the New Testament Sunday as a day of rest. We wouldn't want to start changing that. That would cause a big, uh, if we don't understand why it was changed, that's not a mat. that's a small matter. For love's sake, we'll keep it. We'll keep it the way it is. And I'm sure Christ won't be offended in that, will he? Among the Jews, there was a rigorous enforcement of the law. Even their kings insisted on a strict observance. When the prophets came and explained the law in the spirit of love, saying, This is what Moses means, thus the law is to be understood, then there were false prophets at hand to side with the kings, insisting on the literal text and saying, There so it's written, it's God's word, one must not interpret it otherwise. Thereupon the kings proceeded to kill one prophet after another, in the same way the papists, priests, and monks act now. If anyone says we need not observe their laws literally, we should rather interpret them in love, then they immediately cry, Heretic, heretic. If they could, they would kill him. Yea, they do so already quite lustily. As Christ here treats of the law relating to the Sabbath, and makes it subserve the needs of man. Though we should treat laws of that kind, keep them only so far as they accord with love. If laws do not serve love, they may be in all that wants, be they God's or man's commands. Take an illustration from our former darkness and sorrow under the papacy. Suppose someone had vowed to visit St. Jacob, and he remembers the words, Pay that which thou vowest. Ecclesiasticus 
He may have a wife, children, or household to care for. What should such an one do? Should he proceed to St. Jacob or remain at home and support his family? There decide for yourselves which would be most needful and what harmonizes best with the spirit of love. I regard it best for him to remain home at work and attend to the care of his family for his pilgrimage to St. Jacob, even if it were not idolatrous and wrong in itself, would be a little profit to him, yea, he would spend and lose more than he could gain. doesn't matter how great the work may have been that he was going to go to St. Jacob. God doesn't please with that. He wants obedience in our station in life, wherever he put us. Another example. A mother is about to bear a child who vowed to eat no flesh on Wednesdays, as many foolish women do. Perhaps because of this vow, the mother may injure her offspring and her own body. Then the foolish confessional fathers come and say, Dear daughter, it's written in scriptures that what one vows must be kept. It's God's command, and thou must at any peril keep thy vow. Thus the good woman is soon taken captive and chained by her conscience, goes and fulfills her vow, and does harm both to herself and to her offspring. Hence both have sinned, those who taught her thus, and the woman in that she did not esteem her love more than her vow, by which she neither served nor pleased God, by which she neither served nor pleased God, yea, more than this, she thus provoked God to anger by keeping her vow. Therefore we should say to such a foolish mother, Behold, thou art about to bear a child, or carrying a child, we would say nowadays, thou must serve it and desist from this foolish thing, so that great harm may not spring from it. For all laws find their end in love. We should act in like manner toward the false priests and monks when they say, Yea, we vowed so and so, and it is written, Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Then say to them, Look, there is also a command, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But in your vocation it is impossible to serve your neighbor, nor can you continue in it without sin. Therefore forsake it openly, and enter a state in which you are not so apt to sin, but where you may serve your fellow man, help and counsel him, and do not bother about a vow which you did not give to your Lord, but to the devil not for the salvation of souls and blessedness, but for damnation and ruin of both soul and body. If you are a Christian, you have power to dispense with all commandments so far as they hinder you in the practice of love, as Christ here teaches. He goes right on, although it is a Sabbath day, helps this sick man, gives a satisfactory and clear reason for his Sabbath work. There is yet another thought in this gospel about taking a prominent seat at feast, which we must consider. 
When the Lord noticed how the guests, the Pharisees, chose to sit in the first seats, he gave them the following parable to ponder. When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. He that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin to with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. This parable is aimed at the laws and precepts of the Pharisees and scribes, which provide that honor should be paid to the great and powerful, giving them the preference and allowing them to sit at the head. Christ here reverses the order and says, he that would be the greatest, let him take the lowest seat. Not that a peasant should be placed above a prince. Not, that is not what Christ means, or would that be proper. But our Lord does not speak here of worldly, but of spiritual things, where humility is specially commended. Let rulers follow the custom of occupying the uppermost seats at festival boards, we have to do here with the matters of the heart. Christ does not appoint burgomasters, judges, princes, and lords. These stations in life he ignores as subject to civil order, the dictates of reason. There must be rulers, and to them honors are due because of their position. But the spiritual government requires that its participants humble themselves in order that they may be exalted. Therefore the Lord said to his disciples when they disputed as to who should be the greatest among them, The kings of the Gentiles have lordship over them, over the Gentiles, and they have, or they that have authority over them are called benefactors, but ye shall not be so. He that is the greatest among you, let him become as the younger, he that is chief as he that doth serve. He then speaks of himself as an illustration, asking, For which is the greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth? It's not he that sitteth at meat, but I am in the midst of you as he that serveth. And in another place, Matthew 20, 26, 7, and 8, he said, Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as a son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The papists have commented on these verses in their own way and twisted this gospel, saying, Yea, the Pope is to be the least or youngest, sitting at the foot and serving others. But that is to take place in the heart. They pretended to sit at the foot and to serve others as the humblest, but withal they lorded it over all emperors, kings and princes, yea, trampled them in the dust. 
just as if emperors, kings, princes, and rulers should not also possess in their hearts the humility of which the Lord here treats. They thus put on airs and made a show of their carnal interpretation. They had any humility in their hearts, their lives would bear testimony to it. Christ speaks here not of outward humility alone, for the inner is a source of the outer. For the inner is a source of the outer. If it's not in the heart, it will hardly be manifest in the body. Therefore the gospel aims at making all of us humble, whatever and whosoever we may be, that none may exalt himself unless urged and elevated by regular authority. That is what the Lord wants to inculcate by this parable, directing it to all, be they high or low. In this spirit he reproves the Pharisees and others who desire high places and are ambitious to get ahead of others. They may accept honors when regularly elected and forced to accept high places. I make these remarks to contravene and discredit their false spiritual interpretations. But now they go and mingle and confuse spiritual and worldly things and claim it enough they be humble in heart when they strive for the chief seats. Nay, dear friends, Heart humility must manifest itself in outer conduct, or it is false. All should therefore be willing to take a lower seat, even to throw themselves at the feet of others and not move up higher until urged to do so. Anyone who regards this rule will do well, but he who disregards it will come to grief by so doing. That's what our Lord desires to impress upon his hearers as he closes this parable. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be humbled, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. St. Augustine adds a comment here, which I wish he had not made, for it savors of vanity when he says, Quote, a ruler must not abase himself too much, lest his authority be weakened thereby." Unquote. This is heathenish and worldly, not Christian. But we can pardon it in such a man, for even the saints on earth are not yet entirely perfect. The sum of this gospel, then, is love and necessity control all law. There should be no law that cannot be enforced and applied in love and necessity. If it cannot, then, if it cannot, then let it be done away with, even though an angel from heaven had promulgated it. So I think that's a good way we can handle that matter on the Sabbath day keeping, too. We wouldn't want to start throwing in that binding consciences people messed up, some people not knowing what to do, what day to keep again. That's already been thrashed through too many times. The whole Christian church has been keeping Sunday, except for a few 
just a few now, here now and then, there's always going to be some that are going to be confused in conscience about these matters. We don't need to be confused. All the church fathers kept Sunday. We've got knowledge of all the prominent ones. All this is intended now to help and strengthen our hearts and consciences. This way our Lord himself teaches us how we should humble ourselves and be subject to one another. However, concerning this virtue, what true humility is, I've said enough in former apostles. Let this suffice on today's gospel. Now I'm going to go to the Loy edition of Luther's works on the same sermon. It's a different, it's a different uh, sermon, same text, let's put it that way. It's a different sermon, though. A different time was given on the same text. And I think there's some good reading in here. On this matter of humility, he has a lot more in here. And then also on this matter of Sabbath day. So we'll read in here, Lord willing. Now, we're going to have to skip a little of this. Otherwise, it's just repetitious. And I don't want to lose too much time on my tape, so I have room for my next sermon. Concerning now the first point of this text, as it treats of two points, First concerns divine worship, our duty to God, and the second, our duty to our fellow men. The sum of the first point is that our Lord boldly tells the Pharisees that they do not know what it is to keep the Sabbath day and to sanctify it. According to your idea, he tells them, it's to sanctify the Sabbath day by being idle and doing no work whatever. No, this is not the meaning of the Sabbath day. Sanctify the Sabbath day means to hear the word of God and to help our neighbor wherever we can. God does not want the keeping of the Sabbath day in which our neighbor is neglected or left to suffer. For if I serve and help my neighbor, I've kept the Sabbath as it should be kept and have done a truly good work. This doctrine concerning the Sabbath day shows us how to understand the third commandment aright according to which we are required not to be idle or to do nothing, but to hear the word of God and to live according to that word. And this is what God wants us to learn on the Sabbath day. Hence, it must also follow that we are not desecrating the Sabbath day by such good works as these. Two Christians, every day should be a Sabbath, for every day we should hear and practice God's word. Yet Sunday has been appointed for the people, that everyone may hear or learn God's word. Now we'll cut this short here by reading this one paragraph and then go on to the second point. It says, this is the first point of our gospel lesson. From it everyone should learn that it is serving God and sanctifying the Sabbath day when we hear the word of God and keep it. Therefore, when you go to church or earnestly read the gospel, you are serving God and pleasing him more than you could by sacrifices or so-called holiness. As prophet Hosea says, 
Uh, it's in, uh, let's see where that is. We don't have a verse here, a chapter. It's uh, Hosea 6.6. 6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and a knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And then what is the knowledge of God? It's nothing else but to hear his word, because without this word, no one could know anything of God. But when the word is brought, it says, I am the, I am the Lord thy God. I have given you my son unto death for you, and have received you in baptism, and so forth. By the word of God, we learn to know him to be gracious and merciful which could never be known or learned by our reason. Therefore, because we derive a knowledge of God through the word, it's indeed a service of God and sanctifying the Sabbath when we hear the word of God and then we live and do in accordance with it. Now, the other point teaches of humility, for the Lord himself explains the parable when he says, Whoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You must learn that this is a case not merely before God, but also before men. All men are naturally opposed to those who are proud, and there must be an exceedingly wicked person that would be opposed to a truly humble and pious man. It's natural for everyone to love humility, as we see in the case of the maid, who was willing and obedient and in simplicity of heart does what is commanded. In such cases, the heart of the mistress is easily gained, so that it cannot be against her. It is natural, we say, to be pleased with people of true humility. And again, no one can be pleased with people who exalt themselves. As soon as parents find a child or servant to be proud and disobedient, which two faults are always combined, and hear them say, I don't need to do what you tell me. It's high time to correct and humble them or to send them away. This is done also by the civil government. Those who are proud and don't want to be obedient are taught by the scaffold or sword at the hands of the sheriff. And how does it come that everyone dislikes those who exalt themselves? It's because God so ordains it in his word, which tells us that he will help to humble those who are high-minded and proud, as is seen in all the callings of men. Those who were rich, learned, wise, beautiful, strong, and powerful. They became proud and didn't want to humble themselves. They've been obeyed by God himself. As is said, God resisteth the proud. Whoever has such an opponent shall not succeed. He must fall, and no power on earth can save him. But those who are humble gain favor with God and man. Upon them God and the holy angels, and also men, will look with pleasure as upon a jewel. And success and the blessing of God will follow as is seen. For instance, in the experience of the son of poor parents, these could not give him a penny, and yet he became great and renowned, so that even princes and potentates admired his talents and skill. Whence does that come? Certainly from God. He cannot be prevented from exalting the humble and from showing grace and mercy. 
Thus it is said in the 113th Psalm, Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes of his people. Thus God does with the humble, but the proud, who continually exalt themselves, he meets in his wrath, and will not rest until they are abased altogether. I notice in the King James Version it repeats that. It says, that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. This should induce us to be humble and children and domestics to be obedient. God wants me to do what I'm told and not to be proud but humble. This I will do, not be grieved on account of my humble calling. For I know if I am faithful, God will not keep me down but exalt me in due time. This was the case with King Saul. He was obedient to his father, took care of his asses considered himself the lowest in the land of the Benjamites. To him God sent the prophet to anoint him king of Israel, because he was not proud but humble. And God poured upon him a great measure of divine grace and mercy. But what happened afterwards? When Saul had been made king, he exalted himself and became proud and did not care for God nor his word. Therefore, in like manner, as God at first had exalted him, he afterwards abased him, so that out of despair he committed suicide, and his house was exterminated. Again, David was a fine, strong, and learned youth, but in humility he did not exalt himself because of his good qualities. He continued to be a shepherd and was obedient to his father until Samuel came to make him king. History tells us that David had seven brothers who all were high-minded and proud and despised their bro younger brother David. God spoke to Samuel concerning David that he should make him king, saying, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And David, after God had exalted him, continued to be humble, else if he had exalted himself, God would have abased him as he had abased Saul. But because he continues to be humble, Though he is dethroned for a while, he is reinstated and is highly honored of God, who even promises that Christ should come out of his seed. All of this is written and preached unto us for the purpose of teaching us humility and of guarding us against pride, so that we may not, like a wicked maidservant, ask, Who can be confined to the kitchen to washing and sweeping always? I am not obliged to submit to others and so forth. Beware, if you exalt yourself, God will surely be against you. He cannot and will not suffer pride and haughtiness, as we see every day. And what do you think to be the reason we find so much misery in the world everywhere, and so many coarse, awkward, and unfortunate men and women? Nothing else but this, that when they are young, they want to walk in pride and do not what they're commanded. Hence the Lord suffers them to rove about like swine and never learn anything useful. Useful. For so it has been decreed, he that exalts himself shall be abased, and he only that humbleth himself shall be exalted.
Thanks and praise be unto God for these teachings. May he grant us grace to follow them for the sake of his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The 18th Sunday after Trinity. It says, this sermon is not found in the C edition. The text says Matthew 22, 34 to 46. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is a great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Now turn the tape over. This gospel text consists of two questions. In the first, the lawyer on behalf of the other Pharisees asked Christ, which is the great commandment in the law? In the second, the Lord asked the Pharisees and the lawyer, whose son is David? These two questions concern every Christian, for he who wishes to be a Christian must thoroughly understand them. First, what is the law and the purpose it serves? And secondly, who is Christ, and what we may expect from him. Christ explains here to the Pharisees the law, telling them what the sum of the whole law is, so that they are completely silenced about his speech and his question, and no less than nothing of what the law is and who Christ is. From this it follows that although unbelief may appear as wisdom and holiness before the world, it is nevertheless folly and unrighteousness before God, especially where the knowledge of the two questions mentioned above is wanting. For he who does not know how he stands before the law and what he may expect from Christ surely has not the wisdom of God, no matter how wise and prudent he may pretend to be. Let us therefore consider the first question, namely, what is the law, what it commands, and how it is to be spiritually interpreted. When the lawyer asked Christ, what is the great commandment in the law, the Lord said to him, 
Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. As if the Lord would say, He who possesses love to God and love to his neighbor has all things, and therefore fulfills the law. For the whole law and all the prophets point to these two things, namely how God and our neighbor are to be loved. Now no one may wish to ask, how can you harmonize this statement that all things are to be comprehended in these two commandments, since there was given to the Jews circumcision and many other commandments? To answer this, let us see in the first place how Christ explains the law, namely that it must be kept with the heart. In other words, the law must be spiritually comprehended. For he who does not lay hold of the law with the heart and with the spirit will certainly not fulfill it. Therefore the Lord here gives to the lawyer the ground and real substance of the law and says, that these are the greatest commandments, to love God with the heart and our neighbor as ourselves. From this it follows that he who is not circumcised, who does not fast nor pray, is not doing it from the heart. Even though he may perform external acts, he nevertheless does nothing before God. For God looks on the heart and not on our acts. It will not profit a man at all, no matter what work he may perform, if his heart is not in it. From this arises another question. Since works are of no profit to a man, why then does God give so many commandments to the Jews? To this I answer, these commandments were given to the end that we might become conscious whether we really love God with all our heart and with all our soul, and with all our strength, and in addition, our neighbor as ourselves. St. Paul says in Romans 7, 7, now they also say here in brackets 320, I'll read it here, it says in 7, 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. And in 320, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is a knowledge of sin. Then Luther says, These two places tell us that the law is nothing but a consciousness and a revelation of sin. Well, what would I know of sin if there were no law to reveal it to me? Here now is the law that says, Thou shalt love God with thy heart and thy neighbor as thyself. This we fulfill if we do all the law requires. But we are not doing it, hence he shows us where we're lacking. That, while we ought really to do something, we're doing nothing. That the Jews had to practice circumcision was indeed a foolish ceremony, yea, a command offensive to reason even though it were given by God. What service was it to God to burden his people with this grievous commandment? What good was it to him, or what service to a neighbor, 
Yea, and it did not profit the Jews who were circumcised. Why then did God give the command? In order that this commandment and law might show them whether they really love God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind and whether they did it willingly or not. For if there were a devout heart, it would say, I barely do not know why God gave me circumcision, inasmuch as it doesn't profit anyone, neither God nor me nor my neighbor. But since it is well-pleasing to God, I will nevertheless do it, even though it be considered a trifling and despised act. Hence circumcision was an exercise of the commandment, Thou shalt love God with all thy heart. It was also a foolish command God gave to Abraham to slay his son. For if reason had been a judge in this, both it and all mankind would have come to no other conclusion than this. It is an unfriendly and hostile command. How can it be from God? Since God himself said to Abraham that he would multiply his seed through this very son. It would become as innumerable his seed would become as innumerable as the stars of the firmament and as the sand by the sea. Therefore it was a foolish commandment, a grievous, hard, and unbearable commandment. What did Abraham do? He closes his senses and takes his reason captive and obeys the voice of God, goes and does as God commanded him. By this he proved that he obeyed from the heart. Otherwise, even if he had put his son to death a hundred times, God would not have cared for it. But God was pleased that the deed came from his heart and was done in true love to God. Yea, it came from a heart that must have thought, Even if my son dies, God is almighty and faithful. He will keep his word. He will find ways and means beyond that which I am able to devise. Only obey, there is no danger. Had he not had this boldness and this faith, how could his father art have killed his only and well-beloved son? The Jews later wanted to follow this example, and like Abraham, offered their children unto God, hoping thereby to perform a service well-pleasing to God. But it was far from it. These poor people came to the conclusion that the service of Abraham was pleasing to God. Therefore, will ours also be, and consequently they kill one child after another. Oh, how many healthy, noble, and beautiful children perished. Prophets protested against this service. They preached, warned, and wrote against it, telling the people it was deception. But all was in vain. Yea, many a prophet lost his life because of this, as the history in the books of Kings shows. But why was the service of the Jews displeasing to God? For the reason that it didn't come from their heart, and was not done out of love to God, but they simply looked upon the service, and did it without the command and word of God. But God says, My dear sirs, I was not concerned about the fact that Abraham offered up his son, the mere fact that he did it, but he proved by this act that he loved me with his whole heart. There must be first love in the heart, then follows the service. 
that will be pleasing to God. For all the works of the law tend to the end thereby to prove our love to God, which is in the heart, which love the law requires and will have above everything else, which the law requires and will have above everything else. We are also to notice here that all the works of the law are not commanded merely for the purpose that we simply just perform them. No, no. For if God had given even more commandments, he would not want to keep us to keep them to the injury and destruction of love. Yea, if these commandments oppose the love of our neighbor, he wants us to renounce and annul them. Take the example of this. I recently gave you, Moses, I recently gave you, yeah, we've heard that before. Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, leading them 40 years through the wilderness. Not one of them was circumcised, although it was commanded them. Where was their obedience to the commandment? Was God not angry with them when they didn't obey his commandment? No, there was a higher commandment in force at that time, namely that they were to obey God who commanded them to come out of Egypt in haste to the promised land. By their marching, they daily obeyed God, and God accepted it as obedience. Otherwise, he would have been angry in that they did not keep his commandment. Both the need and the law were at hand, which set aside all other commandments, for it would have been unbearable to endure the pain of circumcision, and at the same time the burden of the journey. Therefore, love took the place of the commandment of circumcision, and this should... Thus should all commandments be kept in love, or not at all. In like manner, Christ excused his disciples, as is recorded in Matthew 12, 3 and 4, when the Jews accused them of transgressing the law, doing on the Sabbath that which was not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. When they plucked the ears of corn and ate them, then the Lord gave them to understand that they were doing no wrong, as if to say, Here is no Sabbath, for the body needs food, necessity demands it. We must eat, even though it be on the Sabbath. Therefore the Lord cited the example of David, which he laid before the Jews, and he said, Have you not read what David did, he and they that were with him when he was unhungered? They went into the house of God and ate the shoe bread, which was not lawful to eat, nor for those that were with him, excepting for the priests. Then David ate the bread, though he was not a priest, because hunger pressed him to do it. Neither did Abimelech the priest violate the law in giving the bread to David, for love was present and urged him to give it. Thus even the whole law would have had to serve David in his need. Therefore, when the law impels one against love, it ceases and should no longer be a law. But where no obstacle is in the way, the keeping of the law is a proof of love which lies hidden in the heart. Therefore we have need of the law that love may be manifested, but if it cannot be kept without injury to our neighbor, God wants us to suspend and ignore the law. I'm sure Christ isn't offended in us when we don't keep the Old Testament Sabbath day, even if some think it would be. 
the proper thing to do to keep the Old Testament Sabbath day. For love's sake, we'll keep Sunday. The New Testament now, as we've always kept, former saints, God wasn't angry with them. He blessed them with his word. And so let's take this as a nice instruction from Christ and Luther also. Thank God has some good teaching here. Now, Luther says, Thus you are to regulate your life and conduct. There are in our day many customs, many orders and ceremonies by which we falsely think to merit heaven. Yet there is only this one principle, namely the love to our neighbor, that includes in it all good works. I will give you an example we recently heard. Here is a priest or a monk who is to read his prayers or the rules of his order, or to hold mass, or to say penance. At this moment there comes a poor man or woman to him who has need of his help and counsel. What shall this priest or monk do? Shall he perform his service, or shall he assist the poor man? He should therefore act prudently and think, True, I am required to read my prayers, old mass, or say penance, but now, on the other hand, a poor man's here. He needs my help, and I should come to his rescue. God commanded me to do this, but the others man devised and instituted. I'll let the mandates of men go, and I will serve my neighbor according to God's commandment. However, we seldom, or very seldom, do we think that the precious service of holding mass and reading prayers should be put in the background. Such a humble service as you regard it should have the preference. But what's the reason? The reason is that these dream preachers who have nothing to present to us but the ordinances of men have made us so timid and fearful that we came to the conclusion we did not regulate ourselves and everything according to their preaching, heaven itself would fall. Yea, they would rather let ten poor people starve than fail to say to one, say one mass. We find even today many monks or priests who rather let a poor man freeze than violate their statutes and ordinances. So lamentably and miserably have they been deceived by their godless preachers and teachers and by their superiors who with their statutes and devilish ordinances have drawn and are still drawing them away more and more from the law of God to our own notions. These are the principal fruits of unbelief and godlessness, which, as the scriptures declare, provoke God. Should not God be angry with me if he commands me to show my neighbor love and I go and follow my own or other people's dreams? It is as if a master said to his servant, Go and work in the field. The servant went and desired to wash the dishes instead. Should not the master rightly be angry with such a servant? Thus it is also with God. He wants us to keep his commandments and to regard them more than commandments of men, and all the commandments to be subservient to love. Don't forget that phrase. So that all be comprehended in these two commandments, which the Lord here speaks in this gospel. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself.
you want to do something pleasing to God, then do it out of genuine love. That the Jews practiced circumcision, fasted much, prayed much, performed other like services, was not pleasing to God, for it did not come from their heart, as this commandment requires, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Thus it will be also with you, you, I was going to say us, even though we should belong to the Carthusian friars, or to still any more exacting order, more exacting one, all would avail nothing if we had not the love of God. From this you are to conclude that all works are nothing that do not originate in love, or are against it. No commandment should be enforced except those in which the law of love can be exercised. From this it now appears what a misleading calling that of the monks and priests is, in that they wish to merit heaven through their works alone. They also bind the people to do good works, in order that they may thereby merit heaven, which is a cursed and godless service. Hence, as already stated, the law is to be only an exercise to prove our love. Otherwise, aside from love, God never inquires about works, no matter how excellent they are. You can now see how many people know what the law is. It means, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and thy neighbor as thyself. Surely they are few who know it and fewer still will keep it. How can they keep that which they do not know? We are blind, and our nature is totally blind. So is also human reason. It knows nothing so imperfectly as that which the law of God requires. Now here Christ shows the Pharisees and the scribes a twofold kindness. In the first place, he dispels their blindness and teaches them what the law is. Second place, he teaches them how impossible it is for them to keep the law. Their blindness he dispels and that he teaches them what the law is, namely that love is the law. Human reason cannot comprehend this nowadays any more than the Jews did then. For if it had been possible for human reason to comprehend it, the Pharisees and scribes, who at that time were the best and wisest of the people, could have understood it. But they thought it consisted alone in performing the external works of the law, giving to God whether it be done willingly or unwillingly. But their inward blindness, their covetousness, their hardened heart, they could not see. They thought they thoroughly understood the law and were fine fellows, holy and pious people, but they stood in their own light. For no one is able to keep the law unless his nature is thoroughly renewed. Therefore consider it an established fact that reason can never understand and fulfill the law, even though it knows the meaning of the law. When do you do to another what you want him to do to you? Who loves his enemy from his heart? Who loves to die? Who willingly suffers disgrace and shame? Dear sir, point me to a man who enjoys to have a bad reputation or to live in poverty. 
For nature and human reason flee entirely from this. They are afraid, terrified, and shocked. And if it were possible, as far as it were in their power, they would never suffer such misfortune. Human nature alone will never be able to accomplish what God in this commandment requires, namely that we surrender our will to the will of God, so that we renounce our reason, our will, our might and power, safe from the heart, thy will be done. And indeed, nowhere will you find a person who loves God with his whole heart and a neighbor as himself. It may indeed happen that two companions live friendly together, but even there hypocrisy is hidden, which continues until you are wounded by him, then you'll see how you love him, whether you are flesh or you are spirit. This commandment therefore requires me to be friendly with all my heart to him who has offended me. But when do I do this? Thus Christ desires to show us that we preach the law rightly only when we learn from it that we are unable to fulfill it and that we are the property of the devil. This we learn from experience and is shown now and then in the scriptures, especially by St. Paul, which says in Romans 8, 7 and 8, the mind of the flesh is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Hence take to thyself this commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and think upon it, contemplate it, search what kind of a law it is, how far you are from fulfilling it. Yea, how have you not yet even made a beginning to suffer and to do from the heart what God demands of you? It is pure hypocrisy if anyone wants to creep into a hiding place and think, Oh, I'll love God. Oh, how I do love him. He is my father. How gracious he is to me and the like. Yes, when God does our pleasure, then we can easily say such things. But when he sends misfortune and adversity, we no longer regard him as our God nor as our Father. True love to God does not act in this way, but in the heart it thinks and with lips says, Lord God, I am thy creature. Do with me as thou wilt. It matters not to me. I am ever thine, that I know. Thou desirest I will die this very hour, or suffer any great misfortune. I will cheerfully do so from my heart. I will not regard my life, honor and goods, and all I have, higher and greater than thy will, which shall be my pleasure all my days. But you will never find a person who will constantly regulate himself according to this commandment. For the whole life you are living in the body, in the five senses, whatever you do in your body should all be so regulated as to be done to the glory of God, according to the regulations of this commandment which saith, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. As if Christ said, If you love God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, then nothing will be lacking. You shall experience it in your daily life, namely, when everything you do, whether you wake or sleep, whether you labor or stand idle, 
whether you eat or drink, is directed and done out of love to God from the heart. In like manner, your mind and thoughts will also be directed wholly and entirely to God, so that you will approve of nothing you are not certain is pleasing to God. Now, where are those who do this? And this part where he says, with all thy mind, argues powerfully against the writings and teachings of man, upon which he especially depends, and thinks thereby to obtain a merciful God and merit heaven. Such imagination of the human reason draws us in a wonderful manner from this commandment, so that we do not love God with all the mind, as has been done hitherto, and is still done at the present day. For these priests and monks think nothing else than that God is moved by the mass and by other human inventions, but he abhors it and does not desire it, as said in Isaiah 29:13. This people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips to honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. And also you'll find that in Matthew 15, 8, and 9. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. The commandment here requires you to consider nothing good that is against God and against everything he has commanded or forbidden. It thus requires you to give yourself wholly and entirely to him in all your life and conduct. From this you can conclude there is no human being who is not condemned inasmuch as no one has kept this commandment. So they're all condemned, and God wants everyone to keep it, which they cannot do. Therefore, we stand in the midst of fear and distress, unable to help ourselves. And the first knowledge of the law is that we see our human nature, that it is unable to keep this, keep the law. Because it wants the heart, and if it is not done with the heart, it avails nothing before God. You may indeed do the works outwardly, but God is not thus satisfied when they are not done from the heart, out of love. And this is never done except man is born anew through the Holy Spirit. Therefore God aims to accomplish through the law nothing more than that we should in this way be forced to acknowledge our inability, frailty, and disease, that with our best efforts we are unable to fulfill a letter of the law. God wants us to acknowledge it. When you realize this, the law has accomplished its work. This is what Paul means when he says in Romans 3.20, through the law is the knowledge of sin. And this it appears clearly that we are all alike. There are one, and we are one in the inner wickedness of our hearts, which the law reveals when we look rightly into it. Therefore, we might well say, if one is good, then all are good. Therefore, no one should accuse another. It's indeed true that in public and gross sins, there sticks a deeper sin. 
But the heart is alike bad unless it be renewed by the Holy Ghost. But what shall I do when I once recognize my sin? What does it profit me? It helps me very much, for when I have come thus far, I am not far from the kingdom of God. As Christ says to a scribe in Mark 12:34, who also knew that the works of the law were nothing without love. Let's read that, Mark 12, 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Let's see what he said. And a scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength. To love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Jesus, when he saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Luther says that man knew that the works of the law were nothing without love, well, what shall we do to get rid of our bad conscience? Now, here follows the other part of this gospel, namely, who Christ is and what we can expect of him. From him we must receive and secure freedom from a wicked conscience, or we shall remain in our sins eternally, because for this purpose is Christ made known and given by the Father in order that he might deliver us from sin, death, from a wicked conscience, and the law. We have now heard what the law is and how through the law we come to the knowledge of sin, but this is not enough. Another has a work to do here, whose name is Christ Jesus. Although the first, the law, must indeed remain, yea, it is necessary, for I have no sense of my sins, if I have none, I will never inquire for Christ, as the Pharisees and scribes do here, who thought they had done everything the law commanded and were ready to do yet more. But of Christ they knew nothing. Therefore, first of all, when the law is known and sin revealed through the law, it is then necessary that we know who Christ is. Otherwise, the knowledge of sin profits us nothing. But the law is known rightly when I learn from it that I am condemned and see that there is neither hope nor comfort anywhere for me, and I cannot even help myself, but must have another one to deliver me. Then it's time that I look around for him who can help, and he is Christ Jesus, who for this purpose became man and became like unto us, in order that he might help us out of the mire into which we are fallen. He loved God with all his heart and his neighbor as himself, submitted his will to the will of his Father, fulfilled the law in every respect. This I could not do, and yet I was required to do it. Therefore God the Father accepts him and that which he fulfilled in the law he offers me. He freely gives me his life with all his work, so that I can appropriate them to myself as a possession that is my own and is bestowed upon me as a free gift. He delivers us from the law, 
For when the law says, Love God with all thy heart, and thy neighbor as thyself, or thou wilt be condemned, then I say, I cannot do it. Then Christ says, Come to me, take me, and cling to me by faith, and then you shall be rid of the law. The law's accusation. Now this is accomplished in the following manner. Christ has, through his death, secured for us the Holy Spirit, and he fulfills the law in us, and not we. For that Spirit whom God sends into your heart for the sake of his Son makes an entirely new man out of you, who does with joy and love from the heart everything that the law requires, which before would have been impossible for you to do. This new man despises the present life and desires to die, rejoices in all adversity, and submits himself wholly and entirely to the will of God. Whatever God does with him is well-pleasing to him. This spirit you cannot merit yourself, but Christ has secured and merited it. When I believe from the heart that Christ did this for me, I receive also the same Holy Spirit that makes me an entirely new man. Then everything God commands is sweet, lovely, and agreeable, and I do everything he desires of me, not in my own strength, but by the strength of him that is in me. As Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ that strengtheneth me. But you must take heed that you do not undertake to secure this faith in Jesus Christ by your own works or power or that you think lightly about this matter, for it is impossible for the natural man, but the Holy Spirit must do the work. Therefore, beware of the preachers of self-righteousness, who simply blabber and say, We must do good works in order to be saved. But we say that faith alone is sufficient to this end. Our good works are for another purpose, namely to prove our faith, as you've already frequently heard from me. Now this is the purpose of the question the Lord put to the Pharisees. What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? But their answer in that they say he is the son of David, the Lord rejects and obscures their answer and refers to a passage from the psalm in order to leave them in doubt so that no one is able to answer him a word. When David calls Christ his Lord, and that he says in Psalm 110, But the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. It is to be understood that David speaks of him both as God and man. For according to the flesh alone he was the son of David. Paul also joins these two when he says in Romans 1, 1 to 4, that he was called to be an apostle separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which is made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. But it's something to know that Christ is Lord, for this has might and power, and is especially comforting in the time of affliction.
That's what Christ is pointing out here, that we would come to know that Christ is Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But concerning this, I have said more elsewhere, and will therefore now close and pray God for grace. Now we'll finish out this tape by adding a few excerpts from the Loy edition. The Jews in their blindness have forgotten the Ten Commandments, which are known even by little children, for which reason even small children should be able to answer such a question, which is a great commandment of the law, so forth. But Luther says that that's what happens when men stray away from God's Ten Commandments, they'll start making other commandments and regulations and laws straying away from God's Ten Commandments. A Christian will say, to be perfect means to fear and love God and to do all possible good for one's neighbor. For God has commanded nothing else Therefore, we must guard against such error and shun our own inventions. We must not regard the catechism as a doctrine of little importance when we are to teach people what to do. For there we hear that we should love God and have no other gods before him. That is, we should not love or esteem anything more than God and his word, but rather lose and suffer everything. If you do this, you are in the highest order. Yes, they say, this may be done by common Christians, but I wish to do something extra. Common Christian does not get up at night to pray, but I'll get up for the morning service. He eats meat, I'll eat fish. He wears ordinary clothing, but I'll dress in a peculiar fashion, and so forth. These blind people finally get so absorbed in their own inventions that they forget altogether the Ten Commandments. Therefore, it's an important doctrine when the Lord here says that the greatest of all commandments is to love God, and that the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all that we are to preach and teach about good works. From this fountain all is to flow, and to it all is to return. For thus it is concluded, if you wish to serve God, you cannot do it in any other way than by loving God and your fellow men. If you would serve God, you need not travel far to do it, nor spend much money in doing it. Love God and your neighbor. God could not make his service more convenient and less expensive than by considering the love shown to your neighbors and the good done them as a service rendered to himself. It is indeed a singular doctrine that doing good to your neighbor should be a worship of God as though it were done unto him. This doctrine, I say, will make a great stir at the last day. The wicked, Christ says, will then ask, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered or thirst? Christ will answer them and say, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. Thus it is certain that if you give a shirt, coat or drink of cold water to a poor Christian, it shall be considered as given to Christ himself, and 
No one is allowed here to make any distinction. Is it not a work of the devil that we fail to improve such opportunity and to consider that we might so easily serve God and yet will not do it? We think that we would run after Christ and bring him all that we have if we only knew where he is to be found. Why do we entertain such thoughts? Do we not find it stated here that the second commandment is like unto the first? And it certainly must fall that whatever we do unto our neighbor, God will gladly consider as done unto him. But you may say, Our Lord God's in heaven. That makes no difference. He also is here upon earth. Therefore, if you see a Christian suffer, you should know that Christ is suffering and is in need of your help. For he himself tells us that at the last day he will complain of us for having permitted him to suffer hunger and thirst. The Jews did all kinds of evil to their neighbors and thought if they only sacrificed plenty of cows and calves, all would be right. But what does the Lord say in the 50th Psalm? I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will not take bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. He also says in other portions of scripture that he doesn't need their golden temple and other things, but if they would serve him, he directs them to their neighbors. You have wife, children, domestics, neighbors, magistrates, and lords, and all kinds of estates. They require all your attention. By doing your duty toward them, you serve me. If your child will not be good and obedient, get the rod out at once and apply it faithfully. If your domestics do wrong, punish them or send them away. If your neighbor is poor, distressed, or sick, help serve and comfort him. Be subject and obedient to your ruler, and you've done it unto me. Whoever could believe what he does for his neighbor, he does for God, would be amazed at such unfaithfulness of the world. But scarcely anyone believes it to be true, as the Lord says in Matthew 25, that the wicked will say at the last day, Lord, when have we seen thee in hunger or thirst? Yet it will do them no good, for the Lord here says, The other commandment is like unto the first. So Christ will then also say, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not unto me. Then, of course, we don't have room on here for the second lesson of this gospel, which is to know Christ aright. But we will hear it on the next tape as we've heard it already on this tape. Oh, that sermon on the next tape will be the Kruseger edition of the same text.